Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the shows that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest and best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, EVP Industry Relations and Business Development at Lossity, and founder of Question Mark, the industry leader in assessment management software. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Linda Anguish, SPHR, who serves as Director of Accreditation Services at the Institute for Credentialing Excellence, ICE, which includes NCCA, the National Commission for Certifying Agencies, Assessment-Based Certification Accreditation Program, ACAP, and ICE's newest accreditation program for ISO 17024 compliance. Previously, Linda was Senior Director of Certification Products for the HR Certification Institute, and she's been a frequent speaker on certification topics at the ICE Exchange, the ATP Innovations in Testing Conference, the Certification Network Group, and the ACE Annual Conference. She's also the author of the GPR HR Certification Guide, a former board chair of the Certification Network Group, and is a current vice chair of the Accreditation Committee of the International Accreditation Service. Hopefully I got most of that right, Linda. Welcome. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Well, no, really pleased to have you on here, a real expert on certification. So let's start with the question I tend to ask everybody, how did you get into the assessment credentialing world? Well, like many other people I've met in this world, uh, I came in a from a different career path. I started out actually in the human resource field and spent the first half of my career working in human resources. I held a variety of different HR jobs in small companies, large companies, public sector, private sector. Um, And of course, as part of that, uh, I joined our uh, professional Society for Human Resources, uh, SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management. And it, I was at one of their annual conferences when they introduced the large number of their speakers with the initials SPHR after their name. And I thought, I want to be an SPHR. So I went home and I started preparing for the SPHR exam and, and earned my first certification. Uh, I ended up shortly after that going to work for the professional society and i took a position in their affiliate uh, which actually produced the sphr and phr exams at that time the hr certification institute i was hired into that job because of my subject matter expertise because i knew a lot about human resources and that was the topic of the credentialing exams Uh, but i didn't know anything about credentialing and i was fortunate to have some great vendor partners uh, who helped educate me in in those. And I learned an awful lot on the job about managing a certification program, about juggling sometimes competing interests between the professional association and the certifying uh, body, uh, about accreditation. um, And that is actually how I got my introduction to ICE. Uh, our vendor partners uh, asked me to speak with them at some conferences like ATP and ICE, and I learned the value of networking and education through those organizations. And tell me a little bit about uh, SHRM and the HR certification. Uh, is that basically the professional body for people in HR? 
Right. The Society for Human Resource Management was is the largest professional association for HR uh, people in the world. At that time, uh, when I worked for them, the HR Certification Institute was their affiliate, um, and they had the preeminent HR certifications, the PHR and the SPHR. Uh, by the time I left them, we actually had seven uh, HR certifications. We had developed some uh, globally, uh, some for more entry-level folks into the market, um, a specific one that dealt with global um, HR products. So it was a, a very large um, growth time for human resources and uh, for becoming credentialed uh, in, in your field uh, as a differentiator in terms of, of your marketability as an employee. So it was a great learning experience and uh, called on both sides of, of uh, my expertise. I think my HR skills were really useful when it came to recruiting subject matter experts and managing the large number of volunteers that uh, credentialing bodies and professional organizations wouldn't be able to exist without. And what are the benefits within the HR community of being certified and from employers getting their people certified? Well, I think, you know, it, it's not only the HR community. I think it's really all uh, professions, right? Sure. It's an independent demonstration of your competence and your knowledge in the field. Um, I think when I sat for my first certification, I was uh, – a little naive maybe, and I thought, well, it's supposed to be a demonstration of my professional knowledge, and I've been doing this for about 12 years, and I should just be able to go in and take the exam and do okay. I can, I've practiced in a wide variety of uh, uh, circumstances, and I should just be able to call on, on my knowledge and do that, and so that's what I did, uh, and it worked out okay. Uh, the exam was very challenging, but I felt pretty good when I left, and I passed the exam, and to me, that was a demonstration that the exam did what it was supposed to do, you know, allow me to demonstrate my skills regardless of how I obtained them, um, not tied to any particular method or, or course of instruction, uh, but just show what I could do as an HR professional. And I think that's the value of the great value of earning a certification and having those letters to put after your name to let people know that you have uh, demonstrated your skills. No, sure, that makes a lot of sense. So I think a lot of people have probably heard a bit about ICE, but don't know that much about it. So can you tell us who it is and what it does? Sure. Um, we're the Institute for Credentialing Excellence, and we had our foundations really in the accreditation of certification programs. Um, uh, the precursor of ICE was the uh, National Commission for Healthcare Certifying Agencies, and that was uh, an organization that was formed back in the late 70s. It was actually formed with the support and a grant from a division of the federal government. And what they were trying to do was promote voluntary standards um, in the allied healthcare professions. So these were fields that were not licensed, but definitely had a lot of safety and health considerations. Uh, you know, things like phlebotomists and medical assistants and nursing assistants. And so the government encouraged the formation of uh, a group to promote voluntary standards and then to accredit people uh, to those standards, organizations that developed certifications to those standards. And that was the foundation of ICE. Um, in the late 80s, the membership organization actually formed around the accrediting body. Uh, so the membership organization at that time was known as NOCA, 
and the NCHCA changed its name to the NCCA and began accrediting not only healthcare professions, but all industries. Uh, basically, what the NCCA standards look at is the infrastructure around the certification, not, not the content, because that's the purview of the subject matter experts, but how is the certification program developed and managed and governed? Um, and so basically what was applicable in healthcare uh, became applicable across all industries. So we had NOCA, the larger membership organization, NCCA, the accrediting body, and then in 2009, I believe, the organization took on the name the Institute for Credentialing Excellence to uh, expand on beyond certification. Now that we have a variety of different kinds of credentials, right? There's assessment-based certificates and there's micro-credentials and there's all kinds of different things that folks can learn. Uh, so the Institute for Credentialing Excellence became our new name and we actually expanded also into additional types of accreditation. So, Linda, tell me about the accreditation. What is it that you do when you accredit programs and why is that beneficial? So I like to think about accreditation for a certification program or a credentialing program the same way I think about earning a certification for an individual. It's an individual independent stamp of approval, I guess, uh, by an independent third party. And it's measuring the credentialing program against a predetermined set of standards that have been set by the credentialing community. In our case, the NCCA standards that measure certification programs look at a total of 24 different elements of how a program operates. Um, and it's very broad. Uh, it starts with the governance of the organization. An accredited certification program must have an independent governing body, and it can be called a board or commission, a council, but that government body has to have autonomy over what we call the essential certification decisions to ensure that there's no undue influence over the assessment process and that the interests of the general public as well as the certificates are being uh, protected. Uh, so we start looking at the governance, we look at the transparency of the policies and procedures and information that's shared with candidates and certificates. Uh, we look at the financial health of the organization. Is it Does it have enough resources that it's going to be around for the certificates after they've earned their certification? We look at the human resources of the organization. Are they adequately staffed either by employees or contracted with experts in the field? And then, of course, we look at the development of the assessment itself. Uh, most importantly, uh, is there a involvement of subject matter experts, the folks that are actually working in this field, so that we know that the certification is actually measuring what is needed in the field today. And also, are they following proper processes in terms of their examination development or their assessment development? How are things scored? How are they reported to candidates? So the whole assessment process takes up a good chunk of those 24 standards. And then finally, what's required to maintain the certification? because those, in order to maintain those letters, there's ongoing developments in the field and so ongoing education or development that should be maintained by the individual in order to keep using that certification and demonstrate what they demonstrated at the time of testing. So, and you would then, you accredit a program and then it stays accredited for 
a few years and they have to get reaccredited or every year or how does it work? So every year the program files what we call an annual report and they report on how many folks have become certified, recertified, what's been the performance of their assessment, how have their policies changed perhaps uh, since they originally applied. Their accreditation is granted for a period of five years, but every year they must file this annual report, which is assessed uh, to make sure that the program is continuing to perform uh, in line with the standards. And also, if they make any major changes in that five-year period, they notify the commission and uh, let them know of what we call material changes, just to determine that it's they're still operating in compliance with the standards. So I know one slightly controversial area has been that it didn't used to be possible to get an online proctoring program accredited, but I think that's changed in the last year or two. Is, is that right? That is correct. I think that online proctoring has been an area of great interest for a long time, but as a relatively recent entry into the certification market, there wasn't a lot of research that was done uh, into the company comparability of uh, online proctoring with, for example, test center proctoring uh, or in-person proctoring. And so the commission had started doing their own research into online proctoring and basically had set up a pilot program with a small number of accredited programs to look at the differentials uh, in terms of how assessments are delivered and if there was any differences in the results. Uh, and that process started in late 2019. Of course, in March of 2020, uh, the pandemic occurred. And as you know, for several months thereafter, it really impacted the availability of in-person testing at test centers or uh, unit colleges and universities, et cetera. So the ability to continue to offer programs via online proctoring took on a new urgency and really speeded up the commission's efforts uh, to allow programs to utilize that modality without compromising security or comparability of testing experience. So the commission implemented an exception program, what we called an exception program for the short term, um, and had programs agree to report on their experiences comparing the different modalities of testing. Also finished up that pilot program. And by the end of 2020, they were able to determine that if a program met certain guidelines in terms of using live remote proctoring, they could also meet the standards. And I would say now probably about 50% of our accredited programs are using live remote proctoring as at least one of the modalities of their delivery. Some programs have decided that they can use it for some of their credentials, but not all. So uh, there's a wide variety now, I would say, of programs that use online proctoring as either their only method of proctoring or in combination with in-person or test center proctoring. And if I understand right, it has to be live proctoring, not the sort of record and review type thing, because content theft is, is a concern. Exactly. That's one of the security considerations. And so the ability to immediately terminate a, an examination, if uh, that is suspected, is one of the requirements.
And what about commercial companies, sort of the big IT companies and other people who give certifications? Is it possible for a commercial company to get accredited as a certification program? Was it really aimed at sort of nonprofit and licensing? The foundations of accreditation, obviously, as we talked about before, were in nonprofits and and licensing uh, fields. But I think there's been more and more interest, again, because of the competitive environment uh, in credentialing uh, and also the increasing value that's placed on quality. Uh, I think that an accredited program being examined by a third party is not only a a value proposition for the certificates, but it's also a great uh, quality control for the program. And also there are certain states that require a program to uh, be accredited if they are going to serve a a licensing function. Uh, There are certain government entities, for example, in the construction field that require crane operators, for example, to be certified by an accredited certification program. So there's more and more impetus for uh, for for-profit as well as nonprofit organizations to become accredited. I think there are more challenges for a for-profit organization. One of the things we mentioned before was the autonomy that has to be granted to a certification governing body. And that can sometimes be a little scary uh, to a private company who says, well, I don't want to give up that control. Um, But if you really look at the standards, it's really concern and and autonomy for maintaining the integrity of the assessment process. So the governing body can't run wild with what the certification is going to do, um, but they do have to have that autonomy and independence to operate uh, in order to ensure the integrity of the assessment. So I think that's something that a a for-profit program has to struggle a little bit uh, to understand, uh, but can easily be implemented. Um, They just have to, you know, be willing to make that change. So I think basically the message is if you're running a certification program, then it might be worth looking at getting accredited. And if you're taking a certification program, you might want to check if it is accredited because that is a seal of quality. Absolutely. And I I mentioned before the Credential Engine, which is a a nonprofit organization that um, has a large directory of programs where folks can uh, list their certification programs. They can provide information on it. They can provide information on whether or not it's accredited. And people that are interested in earning a credential in a specific field can go to their website, uh, the Credential Engine, and do research on what types of credentials are available for what they're looking to become certified in. That's very interesting. And I know another thing that I see is working on is a certification program where you'll certify experts in credentialing. Uh, I think that's about to go live. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. It's the um, Institute for Credentialing Excellence Certified Credentialing Professional, or the ICE dash CCP is the designation that one would actually earn. And for a long time, John, it was sort of an inside joke in our industry that we support credentials, but we don't have one for our own professionals. And I think for a large part of that is that so many people come into the field from different pathways. Uh, There hasn't been really a formal career path to get into credentialing in a large part. But probably about 10 years ago, uh, the Institute 
for Credentialing Excellence did its first job analysis for a credentialing professional. And what we found at the time was that there wasn't really enough commonality in the role to develop a, a full-fledged certification program. So the organization developed a, an assessment-based certificate, which links, of course, training along with an assessment. And basically, we had more than a thousand people go through the credentialing specialist certificate program over that 10-year period. Um, and then those individuals started asking for something more, you know, that they had completed the certificate program, they were employed in the field, and they really wanted their own credential to demonstrate their knowledge, um, skills, and experience. So uh, with the help of a number of our industry partners, we began the development of the ICECCP. We defined a body of knowledge, uh, basically has three different uh, domains, uh, governance and resources, assessment development and validation, and credentialing program operations. Uh, we had over 100 of our community members volunteer as subject matter experts, and they did the item writing and the exam review and the forms assembly. And we conducted a beta exam in the fall of last year. We had more than 150 uh, individuals step forward and take a 200-question uh, pilot exam. And uh, in January of this year, we were able to announce our first group of ICE CCPs. So uh, we were very proud to do that. And we're looking forward to opening registration probably in the next couple of months uh, for the upcoming testing window. We anticipate offering probably two testing windows per year, one at mid-year and one towards the end of the year. And uh, looking forward to welcoming more ICE CCPs into the fold. No, it sounds exciting and I might well uh, have a go at taking it if I think I know the body of knowledge enough. Uh, that's, that, sound, that sounds very good. Tell us a little bit about the differences between ICE and other organizations like say the ATP. What's your sort of sweet spot and why should people look at joining ICE? I think the sweet spot for ICE is really that professional credentialing or occupational credentialing, as the credential engine refers to it, group, because it's really focused on all things credentialing related, non-academic, and it's got a broad range of interests represented in that specific community. So when we look, for example, at ATP, ATP is really focused on testing in a variety of different areas, right? So many credentialing professionals look to ATP for education and development in the testing field, but it could be professional credentialing or it could be licensing or it could be education, K-12, um, post-secondary, uh, a variety of different fields. In ICE, the ecosystem is a little more specialized. Uh, it's credentials, variety of credentials, but really focused in that professional credentialing environment. And we cover a wide variety of interests there, you know, marketing and communications, the governance that we talked about before, of course, our accreditation services, education, standards development, now certification program. We have a very focused conference every year where our industry partners come and exhibit, and it's great for networking and education and professional development. For someone like myself who entered this field with very little practical experience and potentially from another career path, we provide all kinds of resources to ramp up and really develop yourself in the field of professional credentialing. 
Well, that's very interesting. There's a couple of issues I'd like to raise with you. One of them is diversity and one of them is sort of the future of certification and things. Should we start with diversity? So there's been a lot of publicity, particularly in the US, that uh, admissions testing and some other kinds of testing maybe are not fully inclusive or are uh, even biased towards people with particular family backgrounds. What's ICE's take on that or your personal take on that? Yeah, I think that's uh, very, very accurate, John. And as with many other organizations, uh, ICE has really taken some steps in the last couple of years to attempt to address this. We have formed a diversity, equity, and inclusion task force with a variety of our members, um, not only how to help ICE become more focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, but also how we can help our members and pass on good practices for credentialing organizations to uh, learn from and and potentially adopt in their own environments. Uh, One of the immediate things, of course, is to ensure that the folks that are involved in your credentialing program uh, represent a diversity of your targeted population, right? Are your subject matter experts uh, sufficiently broad? Is your outreach to uh, volunteer leadership and organizations that you work with wide enough to ensure that you are Uh, incorporating a diverse perspective. Also, I think maybe we have to begin thinking outside the box a little bit of what we've always assumed had to be in uh, assessment. And as one example, I'll use um, most of our credentialing assessments are timed. And there are some people that just really process things better uh, in an untimed environment. And so I think we need to determine, is it required to really accurately assess? In some assessment environments, it might be. But in what I'm measuring, is it really required to make it a two-hour exam? Or would it be better? Would it allow someone to show their skill level better if they had more flexibility in that type of a requirement. Um, So it's requiring us to look at things in a little bit of a different way. um, And I think that's all to the good. That's very interesting. And uh, uh, certainly there are these people who have suffer test anxiety or don't do very well at tests, but might have the the skills. So I think uh, questioning a timeline is very interesting, though, of course, both for remote proctoring and for test centers, you tend to book a particular time slot or whatever. So it's it's not so easy, but that's that's very interesting. How do you see certification changing? Do you think do you think certification has a long term future? Is it going to grow? Is it going to reduce? Where do you see things going? And how do micro credentials fit in? Sorry, there's a lot of different questions there. Pick pick whichever one you want to answer. Sure, I, I don't think the value of certification or credentialing is is going to uh, wane at all. Um, I still think, as I said to you in the beginning, uh, it is a, an objective and uh, very valuable measure of of competence. I think. Uh, but I think the way we deliver that might need to change. And, you know, we look at how things have changed over the past year as a result of the pandemic, right? We're doing things virtually now that we never thought we were going to have to do. And people realize that you, it is possible. And so they want to do things differently. Uh, we talked about the online proctoring, right, that started uh, maybe originally as a necessity, but now people say, why can't I test in the comfort of my own home where I have less less anxiety and I'm, I'm not going to step backwards and, and, and go back the other way? Um, people want uh, choice. 
people want flexibility. Um, and so we're going to probably have to look at different ways of delivering this. And it might be maybe instead of someone preparing for a large credential, single credential, they want to take it in small chunks and they want to take uh, several different micro credentials that will stack to the same thing they would have ordinarily taken in one large bite. Um, so I don't think that the value uh, is going to change. But I do think in order to stay relevant, uh, we're going to have to question some of our assumptions and maybe look at different methods of both delivering and promoting credentialing. So basically more stuff done online, maybe little chunks that add together and uh, is, is where things are going, but still really, really valuable. Well, it, it clearly is the, the way in which people can prove themselves and show they've got uh, capabilities and and things. So I, I'm suddenly a big, big advocate of certification, as I'm sure most of our listeners are. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's, it's my 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 uh, working life has uh, been involved in. Any final thoughts? Anything you'd like to share? Sort of good practice in in certification. What is it that the successful people do, and or mistakes to avoid? You know, I think one of the things that we Americans, in particular, uh, suffer from is we think back on our high school experience, and we feel like we have to know exactly what's going to be on the test in order to adequately prepare ourselves for it, and a certification exam is really not developed that way. Uh, it is really to test, as I mentioned before, you know, your knowledge, your skill, your competence, and you might have gained that from a variety of different ways on the job, uh, from mentors, from independent study. Uh, and that's why uh, certification assessments are not linked to any particular method of learning something. So one thing I would say to people is, you know, rely on your own judgment. Don't overthink it. Don't try to overprepare. Obviously, if you have limited experience in certain areas that are on a certification exam, you'll want to do a little preparation there. But I, I do think that people focus too much on uh, being able to study and not enough on their own inner judgment and knowledge and, and prior learning uh, when they take these certification exams. So I would just say, do your best and take a deep breath and um, go for it. That sounds like a great way to end. Thank you so much, Linda. It's been very, very, very interesting uh, listening to you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. We really appreciate your support. Please reach out to me directly at johnatquestionmark.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going. You can also visit the Question Mark website at questionmark.com to register for many of our best practice webinars that we host monthly. Thanks again. And please tune in for another exciting podcast discussion we'll be releasing shortly.